a fire on the mountain burning out of control. The sky set ablaze in all its red and gold. The temperature's rising and the wind is blowing hot. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live at nhtalkradio.com, where we are also archived for your binge listening pleasure. I'm joined by laughing man Chris Ryan today, and we're brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community, designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. You can join a tour, celebrate life at the Birches by calling 224 9111. And just before we went on the air, we figured out a new slogan for the show. It's, I'm not too loud, your microphone just isn't adjusted right, which produced one of those irrepressible laughs from Chris Ryan. Chris, welcome to Off the Record. It's good to be here. So I've got a little bit of You'll life. hear me one more time in the next uh, seven or eight minutes. Oh, there he goes. So, there he goes, making <laughs> jokes, trying to be the funny man, trying to set me up for who knows what. There he goes. But listen, folks, I have a little bit of life news that I have to share. Uh, we might as well get it out of the way and figure out what it means for the future, because I have no idea. But I've taken a job. After years of wandering in the wilderness and working on startups and doing a little bit of consulting and staying of counsel at my law firm and playing a lot of geezer rock and roll, I've actually taken a job working with a presidential campaign. And we don't even have to name the uh, particular candidate, but it's the Marianne Williamson campaign. And that means that going forward here on Off the Record, Chris Ryan probably thinks that I have a little bit of a conflict in talking about some of the other people in the race. But I do want to say that right now, as I am talking to you, there are people outside the studio window with Marianne Join the Evolution signs, which makes me a very, very happy guy. But we probably will go a little lighter on horse race stuff uh, here on forward, but we'll talk about issues. We'll talk about issues. We'll talk about all the other things, but it may mean that I can't I can't do my Bernie impression because no, no, Bernie is now it. in no. the primary. That's out, right? That's that. That's out. The focus of the the show, I think, moving forward, will be on politics as a whole, but it's going to exclude the New Hampshire primary for as long as um, Ms. Williamson is in the uh, contest. Chris will. Chris Ryan has spoken. Chris Ryan, the word has come down from on high. So let's let's move right along. Let's move right along and talk about. Well, first of all, Humpty Trumpety sat on the wall, and Humpty Trumpety had a great fall because. All the Congress's representatives and all the Congress's men didn't give Humpty Trumpety what he wanted again. And so what did Humpty Trumpety do? Humpty Trumpety invoked the emergency powers for a total non-emergency. One of the, one of the first times a president has so blatantly used uh, what are perceived as powers to be used in extreme circumstances at a time when he himself said, well, I could have done something else, but I decided that this was faster, so I just thought I'd declare a national emergency. And, of course, he's facing multiple lawsuits now 
uh, pushback from Congress, but multiple lawsuits from various states in uh, federal court, including in the federal court in the Ninth Circuit, his favorite whipping boy, because he has some idea that the Ninth Circuit in California is nothing but a bunch of uh, Birkenstock-wearing, tie-dye, T-shirt kinds of judges, not his kind of people, apparently, which is, of course, not true, because the Ninth Circuit has a record of really moderate kind of decisions. But anyway, that's where the suit is is going to be heard. And one of the real questions from a legal standpoint is whether or not states have what is called standing in legal in legal jargon, standing, to sue the federal government over the president's use of a law that was passed by Congress to give presidents the power to declare a national emergency. Can states show to a federal court the requisite standing, the requisite interest in the case that would give them the ability to pursue a lawsuit? Because if I was representing President Trump, that's the first thing I'd say. I'd say the states have no standing to come and argue to you that the president is spending money uh, that uh, he shouldn't be spending. That is not something the states have any say in. Does that make sense, Chris Ryan? Here's your first chance in the first seven minutes. Well, it's good to be here. Thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me, Paul. Oh, I'm um, always happy to have you. It's a kind of a self-invited guest, but you know, let's not. <laughs> we won't we won't talk about that. But we have a good time. Um, I can be a, a disinvited, self-invited guest if we if we if we wish. Yeah, but you know, showing up is half the battle. So it's good thing you're here. <laughs> That's good. So, um, the, but the president, you know, does kind of a continued basis is put individuals in a position where they are incredibly uh, uncomfortable based upon not following, you know, protocol or having a real understanding of what a president should and should not do. And this is one of those areas. Uh, it is clear that the president um, cannot declare a national emergency just based upon a whim for a project that he wishes uh, to take place outside of the purview of Congress that is supposed to take place within the purview of Congress. And um, it's going to be denied, and it's going to take a a long period of time, a lot of dollars, and this is basically just a political uh, stunt for the president. In terms of speed, he's not going to be able to get the project done. Nothing is going to happen. Uh, the president is going to, um, you know, say, do this. The uh, Congress is going to sue, and then there's going to be countersuits. So there's going to be more, and it's just going to go on for for many many years. No wall will be built. No ground will be broken. And the president will come out on the campaign trail and say, you know, the Democrats aren't for uh, border security. Uh, I tried with the Republican Congress, but they were too much rhinos and uh, were, didn't have any backbone. I need Trump Republicans to support me to get my wall done. Well, and it, it, I would have it, my wall done if it wasn't for the Trump Republicans. So right, it, it right, works for him and politically. And by the way, right now, apparently, according to the polls, 80% of Republicans are all four square behind this president they seem to love him they there there's no you know i don't know that there's been any real migration have we seen any buyer's remorse or any republicans stepping up to say this guy's really just a stunt man and and out of his mind and meanwhile of course the erosion of the foundations of our democracy um uh, continue so you know what are you what are you going to do 
Indeed. Uh, I think that it's going to be interesting to see, you know, particularly as the Mueller investigation gets uh, pushed forth and reaches its conclusion, which reports indicate that it, it may, um, it's going to be interesting to see where Democrats in the House go from here. There's not been the onslaught of investigations that many people uh, would have liked. Um, but I think that, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, what direction folks uh, go in uh, from here on the, ho- on the House side with Democrats. Yeah, well, you know, there's all kinds of really big news happening, and and I just I've gotten a flash here, and I wanna uh, I wanna talk about something that's really important. Okay, it, it it goes to the very foundations of our democracy. It goes to the underpinnings uh, and the moral framework of what what it means to be a good citizen, and in fact, in politics, a good leader. The New Hampshire GOP uh, has apparently uh, tweeted out a picture of the car belonging to Dan Feltus, state senator, who is considering a run for the governorship. Let's, let's, let's be clear. A lot of people like Dan. Dan's been doing a great job. Uh, he shows up for work regularly. And, and they've tweeted a picture of his car with a little bit of snow on it. And they've cited the recent arrests going on around the state uh, by the state police for people who are driving with snow on their cars. And they have called out Senator Feltis, claiming that he's being irresponsible, asking whether he's above the law for driving with some snow on his car. And I'm just wondering, as we look forward to the coming battle for the governorship of the great Granite State, I think this could be a major issue. Going forward, I see the New Hampshire GOP really using this issue again and again and again. I'm thinking about the 30-second ads. I'm thinking about the posters that the negative, the negative uh, ads and negative posters that the New Hampshire GOP puts out if Dan Feltis gets in the race for governorship, showing his car with some snow on it and saying, how can we have a governor who's above the holds himself above the law? This is serious business in New Hampshire. This is the kind of allegation of scofflaw behavior that people in New Hampshire take very seriously. They do, though. I know. Yeah, I, 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 I listen, know you've been sarcastic, but people get upset about this Listen, stuff. I spent five minutes, ten minutes in my driveway this morning with a broom, making sure that there was not a fleck, not a flake, not a, a flacco of snow in any place that could, that could cause harm to me or others. So, I mean, I think it is a serious issue. And I know that Dan has frequently been a guest on, on this show, Senator Feltis, and I'm hoping... Used to be a guest. I'm hoping that he will address this serious issue the next time he comes on WKXL. So Feltis, his, uh, Feltis is going to be $1,000 poorer at the end of today, one way or the other. I mean, you can't... If you get called out like this, it's a $1,000 fine. Did you know that? It's a $1,000 fine if you get caught with snow on your car um, under Jessica's law. So now that the picture is out there... I don't know if, if he knew this before, um, but how do you how do you how do you deal with that? You have, you have to be like, yeah, I care. I, I messed know, up. It's a thousand that, bucks. That picture that picture is really um, not enough. There's no evidence that he drove with 
<laughs> that kind of snow on his car, and there would be a question of material fact <laughs> as to whether the amount of snow on the car actually met any of the standards of unreasonableness that the yeah. statue <laughs> contemplates. And and by the way, um, he would have to. Uh, I expect. Well, frankly, I expect to see him out there with a brush, a brushing <laughs> off his car, uh, pretty pretty quickly. Whoops. Now that um, the picture. Now that the picture's out there. I mean, the GOP probably called the state police to no, stay. They, tweeted, to they put them in the, form, they put form, them in the tweet. Form a cordon around yeah. the car to prevent Dan St- Senator Feltis from brushing the snow off his car. This is serious business, people. This is politics in the Granite so here's, State. Here's how you work this for a positive if you're Feltis. If you're governor, people drive you around. That's so right. You won't have to worry about you it. You blame your state trooper. Right. You state trooper <laughs> you the state trooper. It was the state trooper's fault. He, yeah. f- he failed to properly brush the car. Right? That's the good news for Senator Feltis as governor of the great state of New Hampshire. But in the intervening time, uh, Senator Feltis, if you're hearing this, get on out there with a snow brush. I mean, just come on. Let's not fool around. We, uh, we've got a tough enough race headed, headed for governor of New Hampshire as it is. We don't need to go down over snow backle. The great Dan Feltis snow backle of 2019 has begun. Well, Dan, um, if you need counsel for... Uh, any case that may be brought to, against you, give me a call. I know I can make a recommendation. I'm, I'd be happy to make a recommendation to a firm that has handled all kinds of matters uh, of this seriousness and gravity because we can't underestimate the impact of, the, uh, of a prosecution for uh, snow removal. He's going to be a thousand dollars poorer. I don't. You can you can, pu- you can push forth whatever you want. You can you can try to fight it, but there, it may be, have less value to fight it. Thousand dollars. He should do, or donate like a thousand dollars to a charity or something. Ladies and gentlemen, Chris Ryan is a one man kangaroo court. He is the exemplar <laughs> of authoritarian rule. He I'm has, not saying he's he guilty de- or not guilty. He has he's declared without seeing that. any of the evidence in person, without hearing any testimony, he has declared the guilt of a very, very fine upstanding citizen. Well, I, I think everybody is innocent so until two proven here. guilty. Two things here. A, I don't know what that was. B, um, I'm talking more in the court of public opinion. And if you look very clearly at the picture, the picture he indicates <laughs> that he ran the windshield wiper on the back because there's just the there's just like that marker, and he brushed off his <laughs> side drivers. Okay, so we're all the rest of it's covered in snow. We're doing How a, are you going to fight that one? We're doing a forensic examination <laughs> of the New Hampshire GOP tweeted picture of Senator Feltis' car. The picture could be fake. In front the of the state house. It could that, be fake. That could be <laughs> fake news. If ever there was fake news, that could be it. They superimposed <laughs> a picture of a car, which might have been Senator Feltis's car, on the street in front of the state house. But you know, that's where politics is going. But now here's a larger question about politics that I want to talk to you about. And we're not going to talk about particular candidates, but something's going on in the Democratic Party. I mean, there's 1,736 people who are running uh, in the primary. We're not going to put them in any order or anything we're, for We're you. not putting them no. in any order. We're not, we're not even, I'm not even doing any of my fun accents. I've taken that way down. But but looking at the Democratic Party, it seems to me that you have a party after 
um, the 2018 midterms that really is split, divided, and trying to figure out what its identity is. You've got leaders in Congress and the Senate who are old school, who've been there a long, long time. You've got uh, Alexandria or Ocasio-Cortez representing a, a new wave of young, uh, in, in her case, female, um, in her case, um, uh, 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 with an uh, ethnic background, who have joined uh, the caucus in the House of Representatives. Um, and all over the country, you see a wave of women candidates, of multi-ethnic candidates, um, of people whose progressive policies uh, would not even have been uh, really a, a real part of the public conversation um, uh, before uh, 2018. So let's, let's, let's hand it to one of the candidates who ran in 2016, Bernie Sanders, for uh, helping to make progressive policies uh, much more mainstream. They've certainly been adopted by most of the Democrats. But the Democrats are facing overall some very interesting choices, uh, because if uh, Democrats uh, want to beat Donald Trump, and that seems to be the rallying cry, what happens with a party that is so split along ideological lines and with so many, with so many factions represented by so many candidates? And one thing is really clear uh, at the start of the primary, and that is there's an incredible amount of energy and excitement that exists on the Democratic side. I was uh, at a Pete Buttigieg event in Raymond uh, this past Saturday, and there was over 100 people packed into um, a, a room at the, uh, the uh, Mason's Meeting Hall um, to see Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. And this is across the board. There's an excitement and there's an energy. But I still think, as you're referencing, it is to be sorted out where the Democratic Party heads. The number one goal, if you look at polling data or just talk anecdotally to people, is to beat Donald Trump. But there is great um, indecision about, about how you do that. Do you have to move to the center? Can you? Is Donald Trump so unpopular and uh, the Republican Party so uh, t in tatters that um, any Democratic candidate is going to win, so you can have your cake and eat it too and go as far left as you want with a socialist progressive platform. I think that you have to be... Um, in the middle, I don't think that you can. I don't. I think if it becomes a battle in the general election between Donald Trump espousing capitalism and fighting for capitalism in the America that people know versus Bernie Sanders or someone else pushing forth socialist uh, socialist uh, ideas, um, that's going to be a very difficult sell for moderates and uh, independents. You know, I think that one thing is clear in terms of the issues. You, I think you're using obsolete terms. I think it's really. Oh, I think it's which ones? I think I, think, I didn't say communism, did I? I would just. Talk, I mean, if you try to divide things up between socialist and capitalist, Bernie Sanders says he's a. He's yeah, yeah, yeah. A, Bernie I, Sanders says a democratic I, socialist. I, I understand. What I'm saying is those. I think those terms really are obsolete and don't really go to the heart of the matter. Unfortunately, uh, the country has been subject to. Uh, corruption and corporate greed. And and Donald Trump perhaps is the greatest embodiment of the kind of corruption and corporate greed 
um, kind of uh, making sure that not only did he not drain the swamp, but he brought the swamp into every agency of the federal government, uh, putting uh, oil and gas guys in charge of the EPA when we need to get off fossil fuels, putting a Boeing executive as Secretary of the State, Secretary of State when we need to be um, uh, making uh, to take apart the State Department when we need to have a State Department whose diplomatic efforts uh, are robust and w- and the way America thrives around the world and regains its moral authority is by doing uh, good work, um, not uh, 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 feeding the the Boeing the Boeing complex. But I don't think that uh, there is any Democrat running, maybe with the exception of Bernie Sanders. Who who is um, uh, thinking about who's saying let's let's do away with our market economy? I don't think anybody's doing that. There are uh, Democrats and and fairly universally, I think, who are calling for a new kind of social contract from our free market in which. Uh, the needs of people and the betterment of society is taken into account instead of the short-term profits that characterize so much uh, of the business that is done. That doesn't make people socialists. So I I think that that all those labels really are up up for grabs and up for up for examination. Now it's convenient to try to put people on a spectrum from left to right because we get some sense that you know at least today the 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 right is controlled by trumpism whatever that represents i think that's narcissism opportunism and corruption um and on the left there are there there is a pretty wide split there's a wide there's a wide spectrum uh of candidates on the left for democrats and democrats are going to have a really interesting time sorting out uh, what this is about. I talked to a woman last night in an event who said, uh, asked a question prefaced by, well, you're the seventh candidate I've seen, and I'm going to see them all. We've got one year uh, to go in in New Hampshire. It's going to be a wild and woolly ride for Democrats, and I'm wondering whether or not the the breadth and depth and just sheer numbers in the field are giving Donald Trump some comfort that he may survive because the Democrats may not be able to figure out who it is that can take on Donald Trump. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live at nhtalkradio.com, where you and my dozens of listeners can all listen with your binge listening hats on. We're brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community, designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour, celebrate life at the Birches, call 224-9111. We'll be right back to talk with Chase Hageman, man about town, right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, or as Chris Ryan would say, nhradio.com. 
And we are brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. You can join a tour and celebrate life at the Birches by calling 224-9111. Well, I'm very pleased to welcome my friend, my compadre, my partner in crime, Chase Hageman, uh, who is now elevated. He's now the regional director for the Concord Coalition, um, a nonpartisan, bipartisan, no partisan uh, organization. That's right. It's an organization which focuses on economic issues of long-term security for our nation, focusing on debts and deficits, uh, how we got this way, what we ought to do uh, to get out of it in a nonpartisan way, of course, hosting forums, educating people, advocating for fiscal responsibility. Uh, the Concord Coalition uh, is a remarkable organization founded originally way back when by Senators Warren Rudman and Paul Songus, and uh, it has maintained its integrity uh, and its good work for low these many years. In full disclosure, I'm a member of the New Hampshire Advisory Board uh, for the Concord Coalition and have been uh, working uh, on issues of fiscal responsibility, frankly, since I was a, a congressman. Chase, when I first ran for Congress in uh, 2004, um, I, 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 I styled my campaign a rock and roll back the debt tour. I mean, that's that's what I did. I took my geezer band on the road and I went out talking about fiscal responsibility in my first unsuccessful campaign. Now, I don't know if it was unsuccessful because I was talking about fiscal responsibility. Well, let's just skip over that part. But then. it's certainly <laughs> it, it, it's not, you know, let's face it, it. It it's it's an it's a critically important topic, but it's not a topic that routinely captures the imagination of the American public. I've been out uh, now uh, stumping around the the state with a candidate and listening to speeches and 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 of various candidates and uh, listening to uh, questions from voters. I have to tell you, I haven't heard voters um, all. All, all charged up over our national debt, which is now at around twenty-two trillion dollars. Yeah, a wonderful new milestone. Or, or, or the, or, or the annual uh, deficits that we're running to get there. <clears throat> how did we? How did we get to a twenty-two trillion dollar national debt? And what does it mean? And first of all, what? Does anybody have any concept of what a trillion dollars is? I mean, uh, look, I know I'm I'm old, right? I mean, I'm I'm old, olden in the way they for used to back? say. No, no pushback, <laughs> no pushback. I've seen pictures. So, but 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 you know, I mean, the idea of fiscal responsibility used to be something ingrained in the American DNA. It was it was really we were a nation of fiscally responsible, prudent uh, planners, spenders. Um, we prided ourselves on the economy with which uh, we, we, we used, um, used stuff and did things. You know, I mean, 
from from my grandmother who dried paper towels after she used them so that she could use them and reuse them and reuse them and reuse them. Um, you know, I mean, that was a mindset that a, a lot of us grew up grew up with. And, and I must I must be an old soul. I'm a, I'm a millennial. But I grew up in a house where we reused plastic baggies and reused wrapping paper from the holidays. And I, I vividly remember growing up and my mother having us reuse red Solo cups from big family gatherings with our names still written on them for the family members to use at the next party. Yeah, right. So, and, and okay, here's a, here's, a, here's a bit of personal full disclosure. We reuse plastic bags. We wash them out and and hang them up on on uh, over a glass and let them dry. <laughs> and we reuse them because because for econo- for purposes of economy, but for purposes of saving the environment, for the a whole notion of conserving, and conserving, of course, is a word that's at the basis of conservative, and. I will say this in my best nonpartisan way, and I know that, frankly, many of my Republican colleagues will agree with me that it has come to a sad state of affairs where when the Republican Party over the past decades has been in control of the government, and this is simply fact, um, it seems as if um, spending and uh, spending has increased, that debts and deficits have gotten deeper. Um, and uh, I'm not, at this point, I'm not even saying that in an accusatory way, but just as a matter of fact. But but $22 trillion is a is a huge number. I mean, what is, a trillion is what, $100 billion? Well, it's a one followed by 12 zeros. So that, just put it in, okay. that, in that perspective. One and, followed by 12 zeros. And I do want to follow up on something. One, in your earlier segment, you mentioned that you're not going to do your accents anymore. I think that's a way to make deficits and debt sexy again. So I'm a little disappointed that well, I won't be we'll hearing. We'll find accents. <laughs> we'll find new, a, new yeah. and, and New and exciting well, accents. And what I, by, by the way, what I said was, I, I be, I, and I'm probably not going to keep the promise because, because you know, I mean, like Congress. Ooh. <laughs> well, I've, I've been in congressman, so I know how to how to break promises. Um, but but you know, I I, I don't want to get. I'm, I won't be getting too deep into individual primary people. You know, but you know, when you have a a public figure like the aged curmudgeon from Vermont with a particular sound. And a particular way of talking. It's very hard not to have a good time with it. Um, and but that's you know I'm not commenting on his. Prospects. I have no idea who that was. Oh, that's right. And I'm not commenting on his prospects or his place or anything else. Or we're not even going to get into that. But the accent is relatively. It's just fun. Well, and you've you've gotten really good at giving the Conquer Coalition pitch. You're like you said an, an advisory board member for the, at the state level for us. We love having you involved. You're. Very enlightened on the issues and very willing to talk about them, unlike a lot of candidates these days. That's something that you were mentioning, how you have gone to presidential candidate events and you're not seeing the clamor of the crowds asking for plans that address fiscal policy issues. And I'll push back on that a little bit because I think there are issues like health care and immigration and taxes that are I would consider related to fiscal policy in the federal budget. So in that respect, I am hopeful and excited that we're at least starting to have some important conversations there. That's fair. Yeah. But 
to the point on the debt and deficit in general, no, that's there's not much of a conversation going on there. And we have, you mentioned me being elevated to regional director. We have a state director who's recruiting volunteers to go to those candidate events, and they're basically just getting started and have only gone to a handful of candidate events, and they're asking those questions. But that will, I hope, snowball going through the 2020 uh, New Hampshire primary. It's a, it's a great environment and field for this kind of discussion to take hold. You know, it's really interesting to me. I, I, I will say without without uh, naming any names, I will say that one, and, and I urge everybody to visit the Concord Coalition website at concordcoalition.org, right? Yep, that, that's, that's exactly That's the way right. to go. And educate yourselves about the issues around fiscal responsibility and uh, how we got to where we got, why it's important, why it is probably one of the most important issues, if you look at it as an issue, um, because it, it when you connect all the dots around uh, federal policy, um, yes, there are issues of national security. Yes, there are huge issues around climate change and health care and education, uh, transportation, infrastructure, um, uh, innovation uh, and reform, uh, they all come back to a sense of uh, fiscal responsibility in our federal government and how what the federal government, uh, how it raises its money uh, and what it spends it on. And the policies, the issues that people care passionately about are all affected uh, completely and directly by those by that issue. How does the federal government, where does, where does the money come from, and how does it spend it, and how much comes in, and how much goes out, and, and where it goes. And right now, um, just like any other uh, 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 individual who takes out a loan, essentially the federal government has borrowed $22 trillion and is, and is having to pay the piper. Uh, with interest on $22 trillion. And on that, I just want to jump in there, Paul. Imagine how much our defense budget gets discussed at the national level and how large it is, and even in relation to other countries and how much they spend on defense. It's hundreds of billions of dollars. I think we're around $700 billion now. In a few short years, with the natural growth of, of interest rates and the I guess I would call it unnatural growth of our debt uh, and the deficit, annual deficit every year, we are very likely within the next five years going to be spending more on debt service, more on interest than our entire national defense budget. I mean, to me, that is astounding that that level of expenditure is not going to something more productive, something that could help correct our health care system or invest more in infrastructure or help realign our immigration system and, and so many other things to combat climate change, to invest in research and development. Hundreds of billions of dollars going to pay old debts, old policies, and it is in no way forward thinking. So there's um, – we're going to take a, a short break um, in in a moment, but – uh, you know, there's there's a there seems to be there's there's a built-in tension um, that that is going to be inevitable for 
um, this country when we when we have our <laughs> when we uh, when we when we pull our collective heads out of the collective sand and face this issue square on um, in the 21st century when what is is required um, and I say this without regard to party or candidates but what is required is a new way of thinking about. Um, uh, about the federal government, uh, about our politics, about uh, where we invest um, and how we think about the future. It, there's going to be a real tension built into what we are going to need to do to innovate uh, and, and, the, and the debts and deficits we're facing because uh, theoretically there ought to be a great austerity uh, in, the, in the federal government uh, combined with new kinds of investment to spur new kinds of growth um, in all kinds of areas. And that tension, I think, is what is going to be played out uh, in the not only just the presidential primaries, but in the general election, where deep questions about the proper role of the federal government vis-a-vis the states, uh, the role of the federal government in its tax policies, which are economic policies, all are going to come up and butt up against this reality of a huge deficit that uh, requires um, uh, requires huge payments on interest. We're going to take a short break. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL. We're talking with Chase Hageman, Regional Director for the Concord Coalition. Uh, we're brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. So join the tour, celebrate life at the Birches. Call 224-9111. We'll be back after this. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM. Streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where our shows are archived for your binge-listening delight. Join my dozens of listeners who stock up and spend a cozy weekend listening to Past Off the Records. We're talking with Chase Hageman. Of the Concord Coalition, we're brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. You can join a tour and call 224-9111 to find out more. Well, Chase, we're deep into the sexy topic of debts and deficits. I say sexy only half, half in, uh, half in jest because it strikes me that it's the topic that really ought to be right at the forefront of the discussion, um, especially in the New Hampshire primary, where we've had a tradition of fiscal responsibility for a long time. People have always thought of us as a fiscally responsible kind of state where we take pride um Sometimes a little too much pride in doing things on the cheap. If you think sometimes about sometimes too pragmatic, and sometimes too <laughs> pragmatic. If you, you know, a lot of people are worried about our education policies. But you know, by law, New Hampshire balances its budget. Uh, by law, the federal government there is no necessity for a balanced budget, and we've worked ourselves into a twenty-two trillion dollar 
deficit, We've got including a pretty, pretty high ceiling on on our federal debt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, and it keeps going every year. And we've seen grandstanding over budgets and grandstanding over raising the debt ceiling, which is the amount of money the federal government can borrow to which meet it its obligations, raises. and it always goes up. Uh, we had a huge tax cut that the Republicans pushed through under President Trump, really his only signature piece of legislation. Eighty-three cents of every dollar went to benefit those at the top and corporations. Um, uh, it did not spur huge job growth, but some people looking superficially at the economy would say, hey, we're doing okay. People are employed. Unemployment is very low. We've come back from that devastating financial crisis of 2007, 8, 9. Um, what's the big deal? Um, pres- $1.9 trillion. That's so a big deal. <laughs> the, pre- the, president, the, president, the president you know, came in saying, hey, I'm the king of debt, and his past has – has shown that he's a person who has uh, been in debt for most of his life, borrowing money from uh, banks, borrowing money from Russians, borrowing money from whoever he could to finance uh, his operation. And and he seems to have brought that ethos to his party uh, in and and into uh, this this tax cut. Now, you know, overall, it moved the needle from twenty trillion to twenty-two trillion, and you'd say, "Okay, that's only it's only a ten percent deeper hole than we were in before." How did we get here? So, yeah, I was actually going to go back to this question that you asked uh, at the very beginning of this very beginning of this segment, uh, but I also want to tie in something you said right before the break, and you were talking about tension. I think not only is there that economic tension and policy tension that you were discussing, there's also I believe, a generational tension because we're looking at a time, we're experiencing a time where we want to have forward-looking investments and, and younger generations coming in and taking over leadership positions, and they want to be forward-thinking. But we're tied to a lot of policies from prior generations. So now we have a generational tension on the direction of our country and the structure of our budget. That general generational tension has bled into how our budget even exists as we know it now, two-thirds of it is built up as mandatory spending programs like, like Medicare and Social Security and Medicaid and interest on the debt. Only about a third of it goes to discretionary spending, and that's split pretty much 50-50 between defense and all other domestic investment, things like infrastructure and education, things we've already mentioned. And that's what's part of the appropriations process that Congress even gets a touch. So Congress is only playing with a really small portion of the pie. So how do we get here? Can I just let, yeah, yeah, let me ahead. just let me just point that up because I don't think people really appreciate that. They may have heard you and I talk about it. They may have heard this, but I don't think they appreciate it. So, folks, just for a moment, picture in your in your brain, picture a pie, picture a round pie, and now two thirds of that pie, two thirds of that pie is not up for discussion. Okay, that's the federal budget, and that two thirds is autopilot spending. It is nothing that Congress really deals with because it's mandatory spending. It's on autopilot. That's two thirds of the budget. The last third of the budget, just draw a line down the middle of that piece of pie. One half goes to our defense spending. Um, we call it defense spending or national security spending. And one half of that one-third goes to 
everything else, basically, that most people think are the issues that they're dealing with. Health care, education, um, uh, support for whatever it is. Uh, Chase, thanks for joining me. Always a pleasure, Paul. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the Internet, brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. You can join a tour and celebrate life at the Birches by calling 224-9111. This is Off the Record. Don't go away. We'll be back to wrap up this week's edition after this. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com and brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour, celebrate life at the Birches, call 224-9111. Well, what a, what a wonderful, wacky show it was. I started off with an announcement that I'm now got a job. Uh, we talked about politics in general, not specifically touching on any candidate in the New Hampshire primary because I'm no longer going to touch on any candidate, including I'm not going to share my impressions of a particular curmudgeon from Vermont with you anymore. And we had a great chat with Chase Hageman about money. We talked about taxes and What's what's up? What's down? We talked about debts and deficits. It's a really sexy topic that I that I that, that really I get excited about it, folks, because it's really important. And nobody but Chase Hageman and I seem to be talking about it. It's off the record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet. Thanks to our great sponsor, the Birches at Concord. Thanks to you all for listening. We'll be back next week with more off the record with Paul Hodes. <laughs>